Good morning. Good to see so many visitors with us this morning. So many, and I guess a special good morning to the mothers who are being celebrated today. I know we've got lots of visitors who are either visiting mothers or children in town to visit their mothers for Mother's Day. If you are visiting with us, make sure you get a, a visitor's card if someone hasn't brought you one already. Uh, we'd love to either send you a letter or just give you a call, get to know you, and uh, if nothing else, have a record of your visit because, like I said, we're glad you're here. So I know for many of you, for family of our members, uh, I am probably more new than you are. I've met many of you who are like, oh, yeah, I've been here before about a dozen times over, you know, however many years. So I might be newer than you are, in which case my name's Terrence. It's good to meet you. This morning, <clears throat> this morning we're starting uh, somewhat of a, a sermon mini-series, or at least this is going to be our theme for the next few weeks our next few lessons. Uh, And I mentioned this in our Bible class because it pertained to to Joshua and to Judges and to some of the books we were studying. But our theme is going to be the next generation. The next generation. I I chose this because as we get closer and closer to the VBS and we're planning and decorating and getting everything laid out for that and set up for that first week in June, I want us to be thinking about raising the next generation of Christians. And for some of us, that's our kids, our children, the young adults in our home. But whether you have children of your own or not, we as a, as a spiritual community are responsible for passing on our faith and for raising up uh, disciples just as we were raised up and, and for raising up children to follow us as we follow Jesus. And in our, in our understanding of the Bible class a, a couple weeks ago, we were introduced into this passage in Deuteronomy 6. It's this passage that was called the Shema, which is just Hebrew for the first word there, which just means hear, O Israel. And I want to read us just a portion of it because I believe it really illustrates and uh, explains what we talk about when we say the next generation. And so this is from Deuteronomy uh, chapter 6, verse 4. That is Deuteronomy chapter 6, beginning in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates." You can find this phrase, teach them to your children, over and over through those books of the law, through the Leviticus, through Deuteronomy, as God gives the people the law. Because God wants us to understand that even though, yes, you, the Israelites, are his chosen people, it's actually not just those people who are alive now, but but their families, their whole families, their children, their children after them for many, many generations. Over and over, God tells them, you will be my people and I will be your God. First see this in Exodus 6 when Moses when Moses learns the name of God when God reveals himself to Moses. But there's a fulfillment of this promises over and over when God tells the next generation of people, when God tells David, when God tells Solomon, when God tells Jeremiah and God tells Ezekiel, I will be your God and you will be my people. God is the God of every generation. He reminds people that he is not just their God, but the God of their children and their children's children on and on to that next generation. So as Christians, as the church, as a spiritual community, we are tasked with this responsibility. 
to teach the way of the Lord diligently to our children, the text says. So in the next three weeks, as we gear up for BBS, all of our lessons are really going to have this theme or this focus in mind of raising the next generation. And this week, as many of you probably have lunch plans or maybe meals you've prepared to, to celebrate into your honor, your mothers, as you might have guessed, I want to talk about mothers. I know in the church... We have the pattern of male spiritual leadership, certainly in the worship service. 1 Corinthians 11, Ephesians 5, these are both passages we've talked about before that, that task men with being the responsible spiritual leaders in their households in the church. But I do not want to neglect or overlook or ignore the role of women, and specifically mothers, in raising that next generation. Especially... Because when we consider in really society at large, teaching and raising children is so often a mother's responsibility, or at least a woman's responsibility. And I don't say that to be sexist, but just consider 75% of all public school teachers are female. number gets higher the younger you go, up to like 95% of elementary school teachers. And within the church, it's no different. In fact, it's often more imbalanced. Most congregations are like ours, where the vast majority of Sunday school and Bible school teachers are women. At Dover, of course, our, our high school and our middle school teachers are men. But consider, consider that when a young man or a young woman makes that decision to be baptized, it is a near certainty that the majority of their education at that point, both in the church and outside of it, has come from influential women in their lives. At least in terms of when we think of formal instruction, both in the church and in schools. And so women play a huge, huge role in our society and in the church in bringing up that next generation. The Bible is also full of examples of outstanding women who served God. Mary Magdalene, who, who demonstrated her love and devotion towards Jesus. Rahab, who was obedient to God even though she did not fully know God. Esther, who remained faithful even in times of struggle and in times of darkness. This morning, as we talk specifically about mothers and raising the next generation in the church... I want to look at the example of a mother from the Bible. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Samuel. I want to look at the example of Samuel's mother and what it means to raise children in the service of God. From 1 Samuel chapter 1. I'm going to read a few verses here beginning in verse 4. 1 Samuel chapter 1 beginning in verse 4. Whenever the time came for Elkanah to make an offering... He would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he would give a double portion. For he loved Hannah, although the Lord had closed her womb. See, these first couple chapters of, of the book of Samuel lay out the origin story of Samuel, the circumstances surrounding his birth. What's interesting is we don't see a lot about his father. We don't hear anything about the Levitical priesthood he might have been born into. But the story actually begins telling us about Samuel's mother. If you think about the culture of the Israelites, the Israelites as an ancient people, the, the importance of the family structure and the, and the emphasis not just on the, on the foundation of the family, but really on the physical aspect of bearing children and how, how much of the woman's value was tied to this. Really, perhaps unfortunately, we, we do see a lot of this today. There's, there's pressure for young single women to find a man and to get married. There's pressure for the young married couples to they want to know when you're having children. Parents want to know when they're having grandchildren. And of course, once you have those kids, there's the constant pressure that I assume never ends of trying to raise those kids right. But so often, 
So often people will look at your life and they, they will feel like maybe you're not following the way they think your life ought to unfold. Maybe you're not adhering to the timeline they think you ought to have. You're not getting married. You're not having kids at the right time. And so often, even in society today, this can lead people to kind of looking sideways at one another when they're not following what we expect them to do in terms of the timeline of having children, getting married, and starting that family. And we see that's what happens to Samuel's mother here in Samuel chapter 1. She, she tries so hard to view herself as important, to find value in her, in her life apart from having children, to follow God's will for her life even when things don't seem right. And even in this time of struggle, even in this time of really being mocked by other women in her family, she tries so hard to be obedient to God. The text tells us that her rival provoked her severely, but we see her example of faith. I want us to think about just that societal pressure because I think even there's a part of it that exists today. You know, it's one thing to say children are a blessing. It's another thing to say if you don't have children, God has not bless you. And that seems to be the environment that, that Hannah, Samuel's mother, was found herself in. The text even says, the Lord closed her womb. And so what's interesting is she is struggling, but we have this sense of divine timing, of things happening on God's schedule. And so often we want to be ready for things in our life. We, we want things when we think we're ready for them. We want them when we expect them. We want them to be happening and unfolding at a certain pace, perhaps. But so often, it's just not in God's timing. So it's not how it's going to be. And so we see in the text that year after year, Samuel's mother is teased. She's mocked, but yet year after year, she continues to go up to the house of the Lord to seek God and to pray. Look down a little couple verses. Look down at verse 9. So Hannah arose after they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the tabernacle of the Lord, and she was in bitterness of soul, and prayed to the Lord, and wept in anguish. And she made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me, and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a male child, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall come upon his head. We don't have time to read the entire story of 1 Samuel chapter 1 and chapter 2, but I, what I love about these passages is, is his mother is not afraid to show her emotion with God. She's not afraid to, to bear her heart and to bear her soul to God, to, to plead with God when she feels like God is not answering her prayers. Something I love about studying the prayers and the psalms of the Old Testament is that sometimes we have passages where the psalmist says, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path, as we actually referenced just this morning in our Bible class. But there's other times the psalmist comes before God and said, my heart is full of troubles, my life draws near to the grave. I am counted with those who go down to the pit. That from Psalm 88. The prayers of the Old Testament are real with God. They're emotional with God. They're vulnerable with God in a way that I think sometimes we are afraid of being. Yet God wants us to be this way with Him. He wants us to, to pray honestly with Him, even if that means expressing our doubts and fears, even if those doubts and fears are in God. 
He wants us to be honest with him. And so when we think about Samuel's mother and the environment she found herself in, the way she was treated, the way her relationships were unfolding, she could, she could really no longer ignore the things people were saying to her, pe things people were saying about her. She couldn't keep pretending that she wasn't bothered. She couldn't hold back how it made her feel. And so the text tells us she wept openly and she wept bitterly. She was overwhelmed by the emotions she was experiencing. But in all of this, she continues to pray to God. She continues to seek God, even in this darkness. Through tears, through distress, through her struggle, even through her loneliness in her struggle, she continued to seek direction and guidance from God. And that is what faith looks like. The portrait of Samuel's mother Hannah in Samuel chapter 1 is the portrait of a faithful mother who loved and sought God. She was not deterred by the voices around her. Her faith was not shaken by what's going on. Consider her example of going up to the city, the, the text says, to the temple year after year, praying to God, pleading to God. How many of us have been in that position in our life where we're saying, God, why, why is this happening to me? And yet she continues to seek God for an answer. Every year she went down from the temple feeling like her prayers weren't answered. But every year she returned with faith that God would answer her. If you remember the words of Jesus in the garden. Jesus prayed. He said, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Matthew 26, 39. We see the importance of of seeking God's will. Something interesting is it's, it's not only the holy men and women of the Bible who seek God's will. I think sometimes we, when we say this phrase, oh, we need to seek the will of God, we, we immediately think of, of ministers, of preachers, of the, of the heroes of faith of the Bible, of the holy men and women of the Bible. But the Bible teaches us that when everyday people seek the will of God, they become holy. Consider that Peter was not a priest, but he was a fisherman. Moses was not a king or a prophet. In fact, he had a stutter and his parents tried to ship him down river in a basket. And yet God chose him. God brought him back to lead his people. David was the furthest thing from a prince in waiting when God anointed him to make him king. So much so that when, when the man of God came to David's house, his father didn't even bring him inside. He said, no, 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 no. You, I have one more son, but certainly you're not here to see him. God shows everyday people, and when everyday people seek the will of God, that is what makes them great. As I said, when this story about Samuel begins, it's not his Levite father who raises him in the temple. It's not his father who teaches him in all the right things and, and lays out for him these great rabbis and the teachings and the scrolls, but it's actually his mother. His mother who in times of distress, who in times of great sorrow wept before God. And notice it's his mother who said, God, I will, if you give me this, I will give him back to you to serve you all his life. In all things, she sought God. Great things happen when people seek God. Great things happen when people seek God and they seek him first. Samuel's mother was not a prophet 
She was not chosen to be a mouthpiece to God's people. She was not a leader of men. She does not speak to the Israelites at all besides the two that are mentioned here in the text. She has no revelation from God. But because of her strength, God's plan for leadership in his people is carried out. Because she was willing to seek God first. To have faith and and look to God for her strength. Notice she worships God. She talks to God. She continues to put her faith in God despite everything else going on. I mentioned specifically this morning, I want us to think about raising up the next generation. And I want you to notice a detail about Hannah's prayer to God. When she worships, when she places her faith, when she's obedient to God above all things, even when nothing around her is going right, what is it that Samuel does later in his life? His mom promises that, God, if you give me this, I will give him to you to serve the rest of your life. And she, she is constantly in worship to God. She's constantly putting her faith in God. And she's, she's obedient to God above all things. And how does Samuel behave in his life? If we know the story of Samuel and the rest of this book, how is it that Samuel's relationship with God goes? Well, Samuel worships God. He puts faith in God. And Samuel is obedient to God above all things, even when no one else is. Why? Because these behaviors were demonstrated first in his mother. His mom raised him in service to God. And before Samuel was even old enough to read the name of God on the scroll, his mother's faith made Samuel's life possible. He learned by way of example of the faithfulness of his mother. We see the same qualities of Hannah later reflected in Samuel because her faith made his life possible. She put her faith in God and continued to seek him above all things. And for that, God made her great. I want to look at a few more verses of Hannah's story. Look down to verse 15. Verse 15 of Samuel 1. But Hannah answered and said, No, my Lord, I am a woman of sorrowful spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor intoxicating drink, but have poured out my soul before the Lord. Do not consider your maidservant a wicked woman, for out of the abundance of my complaint and grief I have spoken until now. Then Eli answered and said, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition which you have asked for him. And she said, Let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad the text tells us how she continued to pour out her soul before god in prayer how she she bears everything to god but also notice the response of the priest of eli he responds with encouragement and faith when when she did not hold anything back and bared herself before the lord she says she is respond or she is answered with encouragement from eli Samuel's mother opened up to God. She spoke honestly to God. She didn't pretend to be someone she wasn't. She didn't use high, holy language to impress God, but she sought God just as she was. And because she expressed to him all of her struggles, her doubts, and her fears, she is encouraged. God desires a personal, faith, faithful relationship with us. I also want us to notice in some of this passages that we've read that that when Hannah desires for a son, it is not actually for her own 
the desire is from her, but it's not for selfish reasons. She has, even, even when she's praying and weeping for her own desires to be met, she still has in her mind a heart for service. Because she prays not selfishly, not for her own gain, but she prays, she prays for a son that, so she could then dedicate him to God. And so above all things, she's seeking the glory of God. Again, I am reminded of the words of Jesus, who said, Your kingdom come, your will be done. I think so often we can kind of get things mixed up with prayer. I think sometimes we feel like when we're praying, the goal of our prayer is that we'll somehow change the will of God to line up with the will of us. But I think what's really happening is we're, we're really bringing our will aligned with God's will. When we pray, as Jesus said, your kingdom come, your will be done, we allow ourselves to be moved and shaped by God, to see the world a little bit closer to the way God sees it, to, to want for the things that God wants, to desire the things that God desires, rather than just following our own hearts. Through prayer, we can align ourselves with God's will, just as Samuel's mother did, and trust Trust him to provide us with perfect timing. I mentioned the role of Eli. Our, our, our focus has largely been on, on Samuel's mother, but I want to notice a couple things about Eli. Because I think he can give us an example for how to respond to those who are hurting. I, I can't tell you how many times I've seen well-intended Christians try to respond to the grief or the sorrow of somebody in prayer in, in really a way that ends up pushing those people who are hurting further from God. And so I want us to notice the example of Eli. He matches her faith. When she prays faithfully, Eli also trusts that God will give her an answer. He encourages her. He says, go in peace. And he trusts that God will grant her petition. He matches her faith and supports her in encouragement. Something kind of funny, we didn't really read this section of the text, but in verses 12 through 14, when Eli first stumbles upon Hannah, and she's weeping and she's speaking, but her lips aren't really moving or her voice isn't really audible. Eli actually thinks he's drunk, and so he, he tries to correct her or rebuke her, but he's actually wrong, which perhaps is a lesson unto itself for the men who might try to talk to women, certainly this weekend. But Eli models for us what those who are struggling ultimately want. They want someone to match their faith. They want someone to support them. And someone to encourage them. Eli's example reminds us that we ought to encourage one another in our prayers. That we ought to bring our prayers to the church so that we can encourage one another. So that we can support one another. Because ultimately we are not alone. And that we have a communal responsibility to bring up that next generation. We need one another to grow and mature in Christ. I'll tell you, it blows my mind the amount of people I know trying to do it alone spiritually people who say things like well i'm a christian but i don't need the church i i love god but i just don't love some of god's people and i understand that uh god's people are not perfect i understand that because i'm one of them truthfully but what's interesting is when jesus was on earth jesus had friends even Jesus had a spiritual community that he at times relied on, that he walked with, that he talked with, that he went about doing God's will with in his time on earth. Jesus had 12 disciples, but I can't tell you how many people I know who have told me they can do it alone. 
we see in Hannah's response to Eli's blessing. Her faith is demonstrated even further. When Eli responds and he encourages her and he supports her, she goes in peace. The text says she went away, ate, and her face was no longer sad. The ate is probably a significance because of a, a fast that was happening, a fast that would have happened during her time of worship and prayer to God. And so this, this text where it says she went her way, ate, and her face was no longer sad, it's, it's a finality in three different ways. Because it says she ate, breaking her fast and her weeping before God. She went her own way, meaning she left the temple, she left the place of worship. But more importantly, that her face was no longer sad. There was a peaceful finality. She had truly surrendered her, her desires to God and trusted that God would fulfill them in his time. When we think about what it means to have faith in God, there's an element of surrender in true faith, of surrendering ourselves to God's will for our lives, of giving up the, the idea that things may not happen the way I want them to, things may not unfold the way I want them to, but understanding that, you know what, if I am seeking God above all things, I believe he is in control and that he will fulfill things in his time. We may not always understand why things happen the way they do, but we can trust that God is in control and God is working things together for our good. Later on in Samuel 1, Samuel is born. And in keeping with her vow, Hannah names her child Samuel, meaning I have asked of him from God. And she gives him to the work of the Lord of the temple. Samuel's mother showed perseverance, commitment, and most of all, faith. And for her faith, she was rewarded. Because of her faith, great works of God were possible through her family. Hannah's faith in times of struggle, in her prayer with God in times of darkness, and above all, her desire to seek God and to please Him, even when things didn't make sense, were absolutely crucial to Samuel being brought up in the world, to making his life happen. Together, her qualities became the perfect environment for Samuel to grow up as a great man who himself sought God. Hannah's example of motherhood, of faith, of a faith which began even before Samuel's birth, is a powerful, powerful example. If you are with us this morning and you have been struggling, if your faith has been shaken,